0: episode recorded during the 5th gathering of the Parlamerica's americas Open Parliament Network countering disinformation to promote responsible public discourse Professor Taylor Owen Buegerberg Chair in Media Ethics and Communications of the Max Bell School of Public Policy McGill University contextualizes the problem of disinformation through an overview of its strategies and tactics introducing suggested areas of action to address this phenomenon. I I wanna talk a little bit about the problem of disinformation, um, but mostly focus on how um, we are beginning to talk about governing it. Um, Because I think that's the job, (laughs) that's your job. (laughs) That's where my job ends and your job begins, um, is to implement policies ideally designed to um, to circumvent some of the harms that we're seeing in this space. So let me just make a few comments about, about this emerging governance conversation. Um, the the first is just to say one thing about disinformation, which is that we often talk about it in policy terms as if it's a, a distinct phenomena in and of itself, when actually I think the harm of disinformation and the harms it causes writ large, which we've just heard um, a description of some of, um, are situated in a much broader set of harms that stem from the nature of our current communication technologies. So there's no doubt that the problem of disinformation is not new, um, but it, it, its current character is defined by the nature of our the way we consume and share information. And that way we consume and share information Um, is broadly done online and is broadly done in a way that is intermediated um, by the large platform companies. Um, 70% of all global communication goes through servers owned by Facebook or Google. So the way those companies function and work and are incentivized has a huge effect on our society. I'll come back to that in a second, but I think this harm of disinformation needs to be situated in this broader set of harms that we're starting to see more clearly Um, in this digital ecosystem. And I would include in that the decline of quality information in our public sphere. So the the lack of reliable information circulating through our society, Um, the amplification of divisions and the manipulation of divisions in our society and the way that can be um, incentivized and enhanced and facilitated by the design of our technology. Um, The psychological harm that we're starting to see emerge both amongst adult populations, but also amongst um, our our children, Um, the mental health and cognitive challenges that are emerging, Um, the vulnerability of our elections, um, the ability through which um, both foreign and domestic actors can manipulate our democratic processes is also embedded in this system. Um, And the final will be a, a whole set of economic harms. Um, while these technologies have brought about whole new economies um, and whole new ways of functioning in the digital economy, um, there have also been a whole set of downside risks to that economic activity, whether it be the gig economy or increasing inequality or the inability to, um, to impose industrial policies that we might have in another economic model. All of these economic issues sit and the potential harms sit there too. So, point one. Disinformation is a problem, yes, but it's situated in this much wider discourse around how the way we communicate with each other and share information and engage socially and economically online are affecting our societies. That's a broad bucket of issues. Um, The second point I would make is that um, there's a real tendency in the conversation over disinformation to attribute um, the harm to the... Behavior of individual bad actors. That this is really a problem of people who want to fear with our elections, people who want to spread hate speech, people who want to incite riots, people who want to sell us products, whatever it might be. Um, We we tend to put agency on those individual actors. Um, And I would make the case that these harms are actually embedded in the way the system is designed. Um, They're actually structurally embedded in our. Digital technologies themselves and are a manifestation of how those technologies are designed and built. And therefore, if we're gonna seek governance solutions to these harms, we should focus not just on the act, the, the behavior of individuals within the system, but on how the system is designed, functioned, incentivized and incentivized. So let me just give you three examples of how I think that design leads to this problem. Um, There are three attributes of it. The first is is the financial model. This will be uh, uh, an issue you're all very familiar with, Um, but it's worth I think remembering that for a very long time there wasn't a business model for the internet. It was very difficult to scale a large online company, and the two companies that solved this problem were Facebook and Google, and they did it by commodifying the one thing their their most valuable asset, which was the data they were collecting about their increasingly global. User base, they're increasingly global user bases. Um, and they monetize these data in two ways. It's important to delineate. Um, the first is they use these data to figure out how to keep us on their sites for longer, um, to hold our attention. And this is what's often called the attention economy. So, using really detailed profiles about each individual user, um, a company might be able to design a stream of content that's designed to hold our attention, to engage us. Um, the second way they use these data is to target advertising at us that's most likely most likely to influence our behavior, to make advertising more efficient. Um, and that's often called the challenge of surveillance capitalism. So we have these two economic models and both of them contribute to this problem of the spread of misinformation in our society. Um, The second core structural attribute of these systems um, is their need for global scale. So to make that business model work, to make targeted advertising and the attention economy work, you need billions of users. And when you develop a system with billions of users, and I mean, the scale is, is astronomical. There are a billion purchases on Amazon every day. There's a hundred billion pieces of content shared on Facebook every day. So the scale is astronomical of the content circulating. Um, That brings with it a whole set of challenges um, that contribute, I think in meaningful ways to many of those harms I mentioned. And in particular, the disinformation problem because the question emerges of how on earth do you moderate and decide what can and can't be said in a system with 100 billion speech acts a day. The way companies have landed on that problem um, is through a combination of of two things. Um, Scaling of human moderation. So Facebook has, for example, 30,000 human moderators um, sitting in what are ultimately factories, outsourced factories around the world. where individuals see a piece of content for seven seconds and are then made forced to make a decision on whether that should stay up or down, right? So you can scale up the human side of that, but that is deeply imperfect for a whole host of reasons we can talk about. Um, or you can rely on artificial intelligence. Um, the challenge with artificial intelligence to do this is that we know for a fact is actually very bad at it. Um, these AI are embedded with all the biases and subjectivities of the companies that build them. And we have no way of holding them accountable. We haven't built that governance system yet to hold these systems accountable. And yet these AI are deciding what can and can't be said and the nature of our social and political and economic interactions globally for everybody, which is a remarkable power to be putting in a set of technologies that we don't understand very well and we don't know how to govern. Um, The third structural problem is the effect of monopolies. So if there's a business model that demands global scale um, by nature of the scale that is needed to make that model work, we are are ending up with natural monopolies. Um, And this is why we're starting to hear more and more about competition policy and antitrust in this space. Um, Part of the challenges is each one of these platform companies has a different type of monopolistic behavior or... Um pseudo monopoly or natural monopoly in some cases. Um, uh, Amazon controls much of our digital marketplace. Google controls search and ads placed on search. Facebook has large monopolies over our social graph and our social our, our social media communications. Um, so there are different spaces with different competition problems, but the core is the same. that to make the scale work globally for these companies to function, you need to get you need to gain monopoly-like status, and four or five of these companies have done that. So these are these are the structural challenges. Um, let me just f- conclude with a few comments about where we are on the governance agenda. Um, the good news is that we are in a radically different place than we were two maybe two years ago. Um, Even two or three years ago, talking about this was an uphill battle in parliaments and governments and capitals around the world. There was not an acknowledgement of the problem, let alone the political will to step into this space and develop policies that may not have had wide popular support and certainly were being pushed against aggressively by the companies themselves. Um, That has changed. Um, The public is in a totally different place than they were two or three years ago. And governments are stepping into this policy domain in, I would, I would argue, um, uh, aggressive ways in many cases. Um, so let me say a few things about that agenda, though. Um, the first is that there is that one of its core challenges is there's just no silver bullet to this problem, um, because these companies are so big, they touch on so many aspects of our lives, and increasingly more as they move into the financial sector, the healthcare sphere. Um, the digital economy, right? They're, they're stepping into more and more spaces in which governments govern. So the agenda is broad. So I constantly get asked, well, what's the one thing government should do? And my answer is incredibly frustrating, which is that they have to do a dozen things all at once, and they're all really hard. And that is not the kind of problem that governments love. Um, but that agenda is shaping up. So, and I think it's one way useful way of thinking about it is three buckets of policies, which I won't go into detail, um, but I'm happy to share information on. Um, there's a bucket of content related policies that deal with things like content moderation, um, the transparency of advertising, um, identifying automated agents in this space, um, digital literacy. So, it's a whole bunch of things to deal with this. the the spreading of content we think are misaligned with the integrity of our democracy. Um, The second bucket are data policies. So what can we do to to, uh, modernize our data privacy laws to account for this new, for for digital information, um, for digital IP and the spread and sharing and uh, monetization of data globally. And the third are a set of competition policies. So how can we bring to bear the tools that we've developed or adapt them or modernize them um, that we've used for a hundred years to deal with companies when either we think they're having a negative economic effect on our society or our economy, or we think they're getting too big for consumers to have real choice and make the market function efficiently. So instead of competition policies. So that's the sort of landscape of the policies. I'll add one more challenge that I'll finish on a couple comments on. And that is that very few countries in the world can do this alone is another problem. And I would argue none of the countries um, on this call <laughs> can do it alone. Um, it is possible that if the US imposed a sweeping policy agenda in all of these different ways, um, it would get at some of the problem. Um, that is both not gonna happen and not really of concern to this conversation here. The challenge is what do you do if you are not a global superpower that happens to be the home of these sets of companies? Um, The answer is you have to do some things together. Um, No one country is big enough to do this on their own, which is what we saw acutely in Australia last month when they tried to impose a democratically um, decided decision on a set of global companies who then threatened to leave the market entirely. now, if Australia had imposed that same leg- piece of legislation or law um, in collaboration with 10 other countries, we may have seen a different reaction from the companies. Um, so let me just imp- mention, since this is sort of a, a global governance conversation, um, a few challenges with where this global collaboration is at the moment. Um, I think we need to put some real effort and work. Um, The first is, there are different types of global collaboration that are needed in this space. Um, For some issues, and I would put things like speech laws in this category, it is entirely appropriate for governments to impose their own national rules. We are not gonna get a common global standard for the definition of free speech and nor should we. Speech is decided through historical context, through judicial precedent in each country, um, and that is how it should be. We can learn from each other on how to do it, um, on how to impose these laws and what the consequences of them might be, but these are gonna be nationally differentiated and that's fine. Um, A second category of international collaboration though, um, are laws that are tried in countries that work and can be replicated in other countries. I'll put this like a replication model. So for example, um, the UK has just imposed a whole set of laws around child protection online. Um, The companies have fought this. Um, But it's it's a decent set of rules that platforms would need to follow when they're dealing with children in the UK. Um, There is no reason why that exact same or very similar legislation couldn't be passed in 20 countries around the world. So I think we need to be open to looking to success stories internationally and then just asking for the same thing in our own countries Um, and that will really put pressure um, on the companies. Um, The third category are are the areas where actually we could come up with global standards or largely global standards and we'll get to that in a second. Um, Things like tax policy, we should all be charging similar tax rates on companies um, both. Sales tax and corporate tax, um, mergers and acquisition restrictions. It would make a lot of sense to collaborate in those areas. Um, okay, so that's where that space is. Um, the the final thing I would say, and it really will be the final, is that um, all of this we're talking about is in the context of democratic governance, and there is an a, a, a parallel conversation about autocratic and illiberal regimes and the technologies they are developing and the governance regimes they are developing um, for the internet. And any conversation about these global implications and these global governance solutions needs to take into consideration the reality that there is a Chinese set of technologies that are being adopted by illiberal and autocratic regimes around the world um, that I would argue are further hastening a democratic slide in much of the world. And the way governments are governing this space in those countries is deeply, deeply illiberal. They're using these technologies to further control and manipulate and silence their own populations. And they're often doing it using the similar language as we're using about global, about governing the internet. So it's just something I think we have to be acutely aware of when we're talking about this governance agenda um, in, in democratic contexts. Um, So I'll leave it there and thank you so much for this opportunity.